0: Welcome to Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association's podcast. In Mark sixteen fifteen, Jesus says, Go throughout the whole world and preach
1: the gospel to every person. This good news sermon was given in the Great Auditorium in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Visit oceangrove.org to learn how we're fulfilling our mission to provide people of all ages with opportunities for spiritual birth, growth, and renewal through worship,
0: educational, cultural, and recreational programs at the Jersey Shore. This morning's message will be provided by Lee Strobel. He's no stranger, he's been here before, but he is well known throughout Christianity and frankly throughout the world. Since his conversion from being an atheist back in 1981 to becoming a Christian, God has used him mightily. He has written over 40 books and curricula, Uh, They have distributed over 14 million copies. In uh, 2017, Lee's spiritual journey was depicted in an award-winning motion picture, The Case for Christ, which was shown in theaters around the world. The movie was on Netflix for three years. He is the founding director of the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University. Whether you go out to Colorado or not, consider looking in at strobelcenter.com for continuing education. Great content that'll help you to understand your faith and to be able to tell it to others. So welcome, Lee, to the great auditorium pulpit. Let's give him a hand.
1: Well, it's great to be with you this morning. I love coming back to Ocean Grove, one of my favorite places to be. I brought my wife, Leslie, this time to show her around. We've really enjoyed the last few days. It's been, it's been awesome. It's been awesome. Although i got to say, as happy as I am to be here, I'm glad to be anywhere after what happened to me at Little Rock, Arkansas. I went to Little Rock to speak at a charity event, and this pastor picked me up from the airport. And we're chatting along the way, you know, and he said, yeah, he said, I I told a young woman in our church, I said, Lee Strobel's going to speak tonight. She said, oh, the guy who wrote the case for Christ, is he still living? (laughs) So I'm just glad to be alive after that. But I I bring you uh, greetings from the great state of Texas. Um, Yeah, any former Texans here? The reason we know Texas is a great state is when you go to Texas, that's all they tell you. No. It's a great state, you know, and it is. It's a great state. You know, my, my grandchildren moved there about six years ago, which is why Leslie and I moved there. And um, they become total Texans. Uh, the reason we know is one night at dinner, uh, little Abigail said, could I pray for dinner? We said, sure. So this is what she prayed. God is good. God is great. Thank you for the Lone Star State. <laughs> true texan true texan so i'm from chicago i know nothing about texas so i moved to texas i had to learn how to speak texan so i literally no kidding i went on amazon and they have a book called how to talk texan seriously so i read it first thing i learned the difference between y'all and all y'all that all y'all's plural makes sense when you think about it right but the thing I learned about talking Texan that I like the most is that in Texas, if you want to say thank you to someone, you can say thank you. Or you can say, I appreciate ya. Isn't that nice? I appreciate ya. And that's what I want to say to you. That's what I want to say to all y'all today, <laughs> is I appreciate ya. I appreciate you taking time for your weekend to be here. Appreciate you coming out in the rain. Uh, to hear a little about Jesus and how he changes lives and renews lives. And so I thought as I pondered, you know, how should I approach this? I thought, you know, I'm just going to do something simple. I'm just going to tell you a story. It's a true story. It's my story. And it's a story that begins in atheism. Because I decided at a rather young age that God does not and cannot exist. I thought that God didn't create people, but people created God. Why? Because they were afraid of dying. So they made up this idea of heaven and an afterlife to make themselves feel better about death. That's what I thought. I mean, I just thought the concept of an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe, come on, it's crazy, wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, granted, I tend to be a skeptical person. My background is in journalism and law, you manage to put those two things together, what kind of a jerk that you Skeptic, we're kind of a skeptic <laughs> that you get. I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune newspaper, and we used to pride ourselves on our skepticism. We didn't uh, allow, we didn't take anybody's word at face value. We always tried to get at least two sources to confirm a fact before we'd print it in the newspaper. So we actually had, no kidding, we had a sign in our newsroom that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Maybe she's lying. Maybe she's exaggerating. Do you have any evidence to back that up? And that's okay. You want journalists to be skeptical, don't you? In fact, don't you wish sometimes they were more skeptical than they are? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but here was my problem. My problem is that my skepticism bubbled over into cynicism and it cemented me into my atheism. Now, because I had no belief in God, I really lacked a moral framework for my life. Now, I'm not saying all atheists think this way. I'm just This is the way I think. I tend to be rational. I tend to be logical. So I said, okay, if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability, then the most logical way to live life would be as a hedonist, someone who just pursued pleasure. And that's what I did. So I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic, self-absorbed, really in some ways self-destructive kind of a life. That was my life. What people saw was me you know, winning awards for investigative reporting, but they didn't see the other side, which was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. I had so much rage inside me, so much anger. And if you asked me back then, why the anger? I I couldn't have told you. But looking back, I can see what it was. I was always after the perfect high. You know, I, I, I was always after that ultimate experience of pleasure. But guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. So the rage. I remember once Leslie and I got in an argument, and our little daughter was there, and, and, and I had so much rage, I just blew up. And I remember I, I reared back and I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. And Leslie's crying, and my daughter's crying. It's like, hey, it was just another day in the Strobel House. In fact, I'm going to tell you the ugliest thing about me, which was when my little daughter was just a toddler if she was alone in the living room playing with some toys or something, and she would hear me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. She going be drunk again? She going to be yelling and screaming and, and, and kicking holes in walls? You know what? At least it's nice and quiet in here. Friends, that is the ugliest truth about me. My wife, Leslie, was agnostic. She didn't know what to think about spiritual stuff. And if you saw the movie they did on our life, you know it was because she met a woman who was a nurse, a Christian nurse, who became her best friend, who shared the gospel of Jesus with her, who invited her to church. And after several months of checking it out, Leslie came up to me and she gave me the worst news an atheist husband could get. She said, I've decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh, no. Here it comes. Literally, first word that went through my mind, divorce. I was gonna walk out. But I stuck around and and, and what surprised me, in the following months I began to see positive uh, changes in her values and, and in her character and the way she related to me and the kids. And it was winsome and it was attractive and it kind of pulled me toward faith. But at the same time, I wanted our old life back. I wanted the old Leslie back. And so I thought, how can I rescue her from this cult that she's gotten involved in? And I thought, wait a minute, I know. Even as an atheist, I knew what it would take to get her out of this cult. You know what it is? Very simple thing. I probably could do it on a weekend. All I have to do is disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How hard could that be? Come on, I've seen lots of dead bodies. I was a journalist. I covered lots of stories where there were dead bodies. I never saw any of them come back to life after three days. So I thought, give me a long weekend. I could disprove the resurrection. I'll rescue her from this cult. Because even as an atheist, I understood. This is the linchpin of the Christian faith. The resurrection is the foundation of the Christian faith. Why? Because Jesus, in a variety of different ways, made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. At one point, he got up before a group, and he said, I and the Father are one. And the word in Greek there for one is not masculine, it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying, I and the Father are the same person. He was saying, I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature, we're one in essence. And how did the audience understand who was saying? They picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, you're just a man and you're claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be God, but so what? I could claim to be God. Anybody could claim to be God. But if Jesus claimed to be God, died, and then three days later returned from the dead, That's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? That's why the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. What was he saying? He was saying, look, if you're a follower of Jesus and Jesus did not physically return from the dead, you are fully justified in walking away from this. That's how important the resurrection is. And so I decided to take my journalism training, my legal training, and systematically investigate what is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And when I did that investigation, you have to understand something. I did not give the Bible any special consideration. I didn't, get, didn't consider it to be inerrant, inspired, the Word of God. I do now, but I was a skeptic then. But I had to accept the New Testament for what it undeniably is, which is a set of ancient historical writings. And I knew, just as you can investigate any ancient writing, whether it's by Josephus or Tacitus or Suetonius, you can take these same investigative techniques and apply them to the pages of the New Testament to try to determine, is it telling me the truth? So in other words, I didn't just open it up and say, oh, Jesus is resurrected, end of story. I wanted to dig beneath that. How do I know it really happened? So what I want to do for the next few minutes, just hit a few of the highlights of what I discovered during my investigation. Uh, for two groups of people here, maybe you're like I was, maybe you're kind of a skeptic, maybe you're a doubter, maybe you're not quite sure where you stand spiritually, and I hope this will help clarify for you that Jesus did return from the dead. He didn't just claim to be the Son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, First Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, and to do it gently and respectfully. And so I'm going to give you a little framework so you can always remember the evidence for the resurrection. Because you know how the word Easter, where we celebrate the resurrection, starts with the letter E. Well, I'm going to use four words to begin with the letter E to summarize the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So what are those four E's? First E um, stands for the word execution. You have to have a death first, right, before you can have an ex- a resurrection. And what I discovered very quickly in my investigation, there is no doubt about the death of Jesus on the cross by virtually any historian in the world, including skeptics. Why? Well, first of all, we have no record anywhere ever of anyone surviving a full Roman crucifixion. No less of a source than the Journal of the American Medical Association, a secular, scientific, peer-reviewed medical journal, carried an investigation into the death of Jesus, and this was their conclusion, quote, Clearly, the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. Now, remember, uh, you know, you know the, the, when, we, when we investigate ancient history, we're lucky if we have one or, or maybe two sources to confirm a fact. And yet, for the death of Jesus... We don't just have one or two sources. We've got multiple first century sources in the documents of the New Testament. But we've also got five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating his death. We have Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans. Tacitus, another early historian. Meribar Serapian, Lucian. Even the Jewish Talmud admits that Jesus was executed. This is so well established of an historical fact you would get laughed out of a major academic institution if you came in and said, oh, I don't think Jesus really died on the cross. In fact, we could go to an atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludeman, formerly of Vanderbilt University, and he'll tell you this, quote, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Indisputable. Now, I don't know how much you studied ancient history, But an atheist, skeptical, uh, critical historian like a Gerd Ludeman, to say something is is, uh, indisputable, well, that's pretty powerful. And so the first E stands for the word execution. Jesus was dead. The second E is the most fascinating. stands for the word early. We have early reports that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, reports that go virtually back to the scene itself. Why is that important? Because like a lot of skeptics, I thought the resurrection was a legend. And I knew it took time for legend to develop in the ancient world. So I figured 100, 150, 200 years after the life of Jesus, legends were evolved, mythologies were spun, stories were invented, and that's where the idea of the resurrection came from. But we have preserved for us a eyewitness-based creed of the first-century Christian church. And this creed, we can actually date to when it developed, much too quickly to write it off as a mere legend. Let me tell you about it. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, we call it 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3, he gave them this creed based on eyewitness accounts of the earliest Christians. This creed summarizes Christianity. It says Jesus died. Why? For our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And then it mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses to whom he appeared. Now, what's important is how immediately this developed after the death of Jesus. Remember I said it took time for legend to develop? Well, we can date it. How? Because we know that Paul wrote that letter about 22 years after the death of Jesus. And he indicates in that letter, I'd already given you this creed on an earlier visit. So let's date it within, say, 20 years of the death of Jesus. Now, historically, that'd be very quick when you consider the first two biographies of Alexander the Great by Arian and Plutarch written 400 years after his life, and they're generally considered reliable. But so within 20 years, that's pretty good, but we can go back a lot earlier. How? Follow me on this. Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus a persecutor, a hater of Christians. One to three years after the death of Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus. Boom, he has this encounter with the risen Christ. He becomes the Apostle Paul. Immediately, he goes into Damascus and meets with some apostles. Many scholars believe this is when he was given this creed that he later writes and gives to the church in Corinth. But others say, wait a minute, it may have been three years later. Three years later, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he meets for 15 days with two eyewitnesses to the resurrection who are specifically named in the creed, Peter and James. And the Greek word that he uses uh, to describe this meeting, hysterio, suggests that this was an investigative meeting. They're not talking about the weather. They're not talking about, you know, the the Olympics. (laughs) They're talking about, what did you know? What did you see? They're checking each other out. Many scholars say this is when he was probably given the creed by two eyewitnesses named in the creed. But either way, this means within one to six years after after the death of Jesus, this creed is already in existence. Therefore, the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier virtually to the cross itself. So my point is, there's no huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the later development of a legend that he rose from the dead. We got a news flash that goes right back to the beginning. In fact, one of the greatest scholars in this area, Dr. James DG Dunn, said this. This creed, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as a creed within months of the death of Jesus. Within months. This is a news flash from ancient history. Historians drool over stuff like this. I mean, I think this kind of rules out the possibility that it was, especially when a uh, legend, especially when you consider that one of the greatest historians who ever lived, A.N. Sherwin White of Oxford, studied the rate at which legend developed in the ancient world. And he said the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. We don't have two generations of time passing here. we got a newsflash that goes right back to the beginning. And that's not the only early report we've got. We've got others right there from the first century. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, all of which date back so early. They were circulating during the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries who would have been all too happy to point out the errors if they were making this stuff up. Friends, we got an execution. Jesus was dead we got reports of his resurrection that are so early, so immediate, you can't just write them off as being a legend. But that's not all we've got. We've got a third word that begins with the letter E, which is the word empty. We have an empty tomb. The historical record tells us that Jesus' body was placed in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish council. It's sealed. Matthew tells us it's guarded, and yet it's discovered empty that first Easter morning. Now, we could talk for the rest of the day about all the historical evidence that the tomb was empty, but I'm just gonna give you one fact, because to me, this is conclusive, and that's this. Even the enemies of Jesus admitted it was empty. How do we know? Because we know from sources inside and outside the New Testament that when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents never said was baloney, go open the tomb, you'll find the body. That's all they had to say. They didn't say that. What did they say? We know from sources inside and outside the Bible that when the disciples said Jesus is risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, um, the disciples stole the body. Now think about that. What is that? That's a cover story. They're implicitly admitting the tomb is empty. They're just trying to explain how it got empty. See what I'm saying? It's like if you're a teacher... And a student comes up to you and says, the dog ate my homework. That student's admitting, look, I don't have my homework, but I can explain what happened to it. The dog ate it. It's the same thing. So whether it's implicit or explicit, whether it's the supporters of Jesus or the enemies of Jesus, everybody's conceding the tomb was empty. That's not the issue of history. The issue of history really is how did it get empty? And you go through the usual list of suspects. The Romans weren't about to steal the body, they wanted Jesus dead. The religious leaders today weren't about to steal the body, they wanted Jesus to stay dead. The disciples weren't about to steal the body, they didn't have the motive, they didn't have the means, and they didn't have the opportunity. What's more, we have seven ancient sources, six of them outside the Bible, that tell us that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. Why were they willing to suffer that way? Why were they willing to even give their lives? Because they heard on CNN that he'd been resurrected? No. Because a Sunday school teacher told them? No. Because they were there. Of all human beings who've ever lived in history, the disciples were in a unique position to know for a fact, is this true or is it a lie? They talked to the resurrected Jesus. They ate with him. They touched him. They knew the truth. And knowing the truth, they were willing to suffer for their proclamation that it's true that Jesus rose from the dead. And that leads us to the question then, how did the tomb get empty? And that brings us to the fourth word that begins with the letter E, which is the word eyewitnesses. Not only was Jesus' tomb discovered empty... But over a period of time, Jesus appears alive in a dozen different instances to more than 515 people. To skeptics and doubters, as well as to believers. To men, to women, to groups, to individuals, indoors, outdoors, daytime, nighttime. As I said, the disciples touched him and talked with him and ate with him. I mean, think of this. Remember I said earlier, we're lucky when we study ancient history, if we have one or maybe two sources to confirm a fact, get this, for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. Friends, that is an avalanche of historical data. Well, I spent two years of my life investigating this. And at the end, I was shocked to find myself agreeing to a guy who was one of my heroes when I was at Yale Law School. He was the greatest defense attorney who ever lived. He was in the Guinness Book of World Records. He won more Cases More murder cases as the defense attorney in a row than anybody in history. Brilliant defense attorney. He was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth. He was a member of the highest court of his land. And he was a skeptic about the resurrection, as I was at the time. But then somebody challenged him and said, "Sir Lionel, you're the greatest lawyer who ever lived." Why don't you take your monumental legal skill and apply it to the historical record and reach an informed conclusion about whether Jesus really did return from the dead. And I will recite to you one sentence he wrote to summarize his own investigation. He said this, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. This from the greatest defense attorney who ever lived. That is a man who knows what constitutes good evidence. So here I am, it's November the 8th of 1981, it was a Sunday, Sunday. I went to church with Leslie that morning and I went home and I said to myself, you know, a good juror reaches a verdict. So I sat down with all these, all the evidence I'd accumulated over two years, just stacks of documents and books and records and all this stuff. And I just, I just reviewed it one more time. And then I sat back and I said, well, wait a second. In light of this avalanche of evidence that's so, is, is so powerful, I said it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. <laughs> I mean, the scales just kind of went like that. And that's when I reached my verdict in the case for Christ, based on the historical data. I was convinced that Jesus didn't just claim to be the Son of God. He backed up that claim by returning from the dead. So, guess what happened? Nothing. <laughs> I was, was kind of like, is that it? I feel kind of let down after two years. Okay, I've reached my verdict. So what? I mean, what's next? I, I didn't know what to do. But Leslie pointed out a verse to me, John 1:12. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And I looked at that verse and I noticed if you take the key words out of that verse, it forms an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So I said, okay, I get it now. I believe based on the data that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He backed it up by returning from the dead. I get it, I believe it, but that's not enough. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive this free gift of God's grace. Free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that he purchased on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sin. And when I would receive this free gift of his grace in a prayer of repentance and faith, I would become a child of God. So I got on my knees, and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and I became a child of God. And Leslie... Leslie threw her arms around my neck. She was crying. and She said, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, when I was a new Christian, I met some women at church, and I told them about you. And I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. He is the hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He's never going to bend his knee to Jesus. And this one elderly saint by the name of Sylvia put her arm around Leslie's shoulder, kind of pulled her to the side and said, Oh, Leslie no one is beyond hope and she gave a verse from the old testament ezekiel 3626 it says moreover i will give you a new heart and i will put a new spirit within you i will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh And what I never knew, that whole two years that I'm on this investigative journey, what I never knew at the time is my wife, every day, on her knees, in private, was praying that verse for me. And can I tell you what happened? (laughs) Starting on that Sunday afternoon, now that I'd received this free gift of God's grace, and then as I was baptized, as I became part of a vibrant church, as I learned to pray, as I learned to read the Bible with fresh eyes, as I learned to worship, God began to answer her prayers because my values changed and my morality changed and my worldview and my philosophy and my attitudes and my priorities and my relationships and my parenting, my marriage. I mean, all these things over time, over time, began to change for the good. And you know, I I used to, now, people would tell me, "Tell me your story. Tell me," and, and I tell the whole story up until this point, and I never knew what else to say. You know why? How do I explain to you the radical difference Jesus made in my life? You didn't know me when I was literally drunk in an alley, so uh, and I was always stuck. How do I explain to you, who didn't know me then, the difference that God has made? And then one day God said, I'll tell you how you tell them. Tell them about your little girl. Remember, I told you about my little daughter, Allison. She was five years old when I came to faith. All she had known the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent, angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. That was her whole life. But starting on that Sunday afternoon, you know what she did? She started to watch. Something's changing with my dad. Something's different with my dad. Something's new with my dad. Never interviewed a scholar, never studied archaeology. She's just five years old, but she could listen, she could observe, she could watch, and she did. And it took about four or five months. And then one Sunday morning, you know what she did? She came up to Leslie And she said, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. And at age five, she came to faith in Jesus, received his free gift of grace. Today she's married to a seminary graduate. She writes children's books about God. She's a novelist. She has half a dozen books of fiction that have been published, but they all have the gospel woven into them. She is the mother of two of my four precious grandchildren. And today, we're the best of friends. And same thing with my son. My son saw, at a young age, the difference God was making in his mom and his dad and his sister. And he came to faith at a young age, too. But he took a different approach. He took an academic approach. He got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies. Then he got a master's degree in philosophy of religion. Then he got another master's degree in New Testament. And then, after many years of research and study at Yale University and at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, he was awarded his PhD in theology. And you know what he does today? He's a professor of spiritual theology at one of the largest Christian seminaries in America, teaching future pastors about Jesus Christ. And eight years ago, eight years ago, his wife gave birth to their first son. And he named him after his dad. Friends, God... God rescued our family, he changed our family, changed my son, he changed my wife, he changed my daughter, he changed me, and now he's changing our grandkids one at a time. And now, this coming week on Thursday, Leslie and I will celebrate our 49th wedding anniversary together. So that's my story. So let me end with this, let me, me, that's my story, but I just wanna end by applying it to you really quickly. Some of you believe plus receive equals become. Many of you have already become. You're a follower of Jesus. You've received his free gift of grace. What I want to say to you is we live in a world today that is full of questions and doubts. We need to help give reasons why we believe what we believe. We have good reasons. Um, I started a a center at Colorado Christian University. We now have online training. I have 40 PhDs who have done courses. And you can take a course. incredibly inexpensive, they're all online. You could take a course on the resurrection or on science and faith or on how to share your faith more naturally. Do it right from the comfort of your home. Just go to strobelcenter.com and all the information is there. But I hope you'll learn these four E's so that you can tell people why it is we believe what we believe. Second, believe plus receive equals become. Some of you may not believe. Maybe a friend invited you today and you decided to come. But you're like I was, you know, years ago. You have questions and doubts. Can I tell you something? That's okay. It's okay. As long as you do what I did and you check it out. The Old Testament and the New Testament both say if you sincerely seek God, guess what? You're going to find him. So, you know, all of my books, I've written 40 books, and they're full of evidence for the, the truth of Christianity. Guess what? They're all totally free at any local library. Just go to your library, check it out. I hope that'll be a a way you can continue to grow in your understanding of why it is we believe what we believe. But I'm going to end with this. Some of you may believe, but you've never received. You believe the right stuff, which is great. You can recite the Apostles' Creed, which is great. But has there been a point in time when you have received this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life, this free gift of God's grace, Maybe you live in a state of anxiety and apprehension. Where do you stand with God? But the Bible says, these things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know for a fact that if you close your eyes for the last time in this world, you will open them in the presence of God forever. You can know for a fact. Do you know that you've received Jesus as your forgiver and your leader, your Lord and your Savior? Well, I'm just going to offer a short prayer, and if you want to just put down a a spike in the ground, say, this is the day that I know that I not only believe the right stuff, but I receive this free gift of God's grace. Then you'll be able to always go back to this moment and say, no, 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 I remember. I prayed with Lee Strobel that day. I know where I stand with God. So let me offer that prayer, and then I'll close our time in prayer for all of us. So if you want to take that step, just... In your heart, God will hear you. Just in your heart, say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the Son of God. You proved it by returning from the dead. And right now, I confess the obvious, which is that I am a sinner. I've done things I knew they were wrong before I did them, and I did them anyway. I've sinned. And I want to turn from that. And in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive. I want to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you purchased for me on the cross. Thank you for loving me so much. You endured the torture of crucifixion so we could be united and reconciled forever. Help me to live the kind of life that you want me to live. Because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know from Luke 15 that a party breaks out in heaven whenever a sinner repents, receives forgiveness through your Son. And so we celebrate with those who have taken that step just now. We pray for those that are still on the journey. Open their eyes, Lord, to the truth of who you are so that someday we can celebrate their rebirth as well. And Father, for those of us who have been your children maybe for a long, long time, we pray you would help us be stronger salt and brighter light as we share your message of hope and grace and love and redemption and justice and eternal life, that we shine that message wherever we go. Thank you for this great auditorium where your word has gone forth for well over a century. Thank you that we live in a land where we're free to talk about the truth of who you are. And now send us forth, use us as you will, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless y'all. All All y'all. God bless all 'all. (laughs) y'all. Well, to him who is able to keep you from falling... And to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only god our savior be glory majesty power and authority through jesus christ our lord before all ages now and forevermore amen Amen. thank you for listening for more about attending a worship service in the great auditorium Additional programs offered by the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association and social media links go to oceangrove.org.